This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. So my guest today is Francesca Minerva. Francesca is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Ghent. Her research focuses on applied philosophy, including lookism, conscientious objection, abortion, academic freedom, and cryonics. She has published many articles on these topics in some of the leading academic journals in ethics and philosophy, including the Journal of Medical Ethics, Bioethics, the Cambridge Quarterly Review of Health Ethics, actually, I think is the correct title of that journal, and um, the Hastings Center Report. So yeah, welcome to the show, Francesca. Hello, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk here. So I invited you on the show today to discuss a book that you recently published with Palgrave Macmillan entitled The Ethics of Cryonics. Now, I suspect people listening to this will be familiar with the basic idea of cryonics. It features prominently in you know, popular media, particularly in science fiction, and is indeed the major plot point in one of my favorite shows, Futurama. It's essentially the attempt to prolong life or extend life by freezing yourself in the hope that you'll be resuscitated at some point in the future. Now, your book is an excellent analysis of some of the philosophical and ethical questions that this practice raises. I'm hoping we can explore some of the main ideas and arguments from your book over the course of our conversation. Now, the usual caveat applies here when we're discussing a book, which is that we're not going to be able to do justice to the entirety of it. And I would encourage listeners to read the book or find a copy of it to get the more detailed analysis of it. But I'm at least hoping we can touch on some of the main points within the book. I just wanted to start with some basic facts about cryonics. Now, I appreciate your book is not really about the technical aspects of cryonics. It's more about the philosophical and ethical aspects of it. But I do want to start with some kind of basic facts and figures here. So I offered a non-technical definition of cryonics there in the introduction. But how would you define it? Is there a more precise way in which to characterize what cryonics is? Yes. So cryonics is also called sometimes cryopreservation or cryosuspension. It's the act of preserving legally dead individuals at ultra-low temperatures, typically using liquid nitrogen. So this means they are cryopreserved at minus 196 Celsius. Such extremely low temperatures can pose the metabolic process uh, of the cells to a point where the body is completely inactive 
and does not decompose. And this should make it possible, at least in theory, to unpose them at a later time. The hope is that in the future it will be possible to, to revive these people who have been cryopreserved and recover their body and especially their memories and their personality. So all the content stored in their brains. Okay, so I mean, there are many different, or there are a couple of different forms that cryonics can take. Um, I suppose the main distinction is between, you know, whole body cryonics versus neuro preservation. Could you explain the distinction between those two types of cryopreservation and if there are any others that we should be aware of as well? Um, yes, these are the two options available that I'm aware of, the whole body uh, preservation and the neuropreservation. So in the case of the whole body preservation, what happened is that all your body is cooled down and uh, and then cryopreserved upside down, so you're in liquid nitrogen. And in the case of the Neuropreservation is just the head. I mean, it's eminent preserving the brain, so it's just the head that is detached from the body and, and cryopreserved. There are some advantages of preserving the whole body and some advantages in preserving just uh, the brain. The advantage of preserving the whole body is that, well, you don't have to go through the procedure of, you know, removing the head from the body. And in theory, you would wake up one day in, in your old body, that's the body you're comfortable with and that you know better. You wouldn't have to go through the procedure of having like a head transplant on a new body. But it is more expensive. So it is about $200,000 at Alcor. Near preservation might be safer in case of an emergency. So in case there is a need to transfer the, the patients at a, um, at a facility in a different place because there is a fire or something, it, you know, the, the patients that don't have the brains are more easily to, to transport and it is also cheaper. So it can be around uh, $18,000 to preserve just the head in, uh, I think, at the Cryonic Institute. It's still a bit more expensive at Alcor because Alcor includes some other uh, service like the transportation of, of the patient from the place where they die to the facility. And they also have a sort of like an insurance for preserving use in case the company to prevent the company to go bankrupt because it happened in the past that some companies went bankrupt and then the patients were removed from their cryopreserved reserve state. So to preserve, to avoid that, Alcor has some um, uses some money to keep the company afloat economically as well. Okay, I mean, so you mentioned a, a couple of the main companies there. So Alcor is probably the most famous one. That's located in, is it Arizona in the U.S.? Yeah, I think so. Yes. And then, so what are the other ones that are out there? Uh, there is the Cryonics Institute, which I'm not sure where it is based. Actually, I think it's still in the U.S. And uh, Cryoras. Uh, I don't know if it's pronounced like Cryo Russia. So that's based in Russia. I think it's the newest one. It's also the cheapest. And it's the only one, I think, around Europe. So I think it's these three ones at the moment. Alcor being the biggest, they have around 160 patients. I think it's most patients that they have there. Okay. So um, you, you also mentioned the costs of, of cryopreservation. Obviously, varies across these different institutions. So there's there's probably an important distinction to make here between like a lump sum cost for preservation and an insurance cost, because I know there are some companies that allow you to kind of pay a subscription fee or a, sub, um, a premium monthly to ensure that you're cryopreserved. So what are the kind of costs that are involved in 
in those sorts of different schemes of, of payment? Yes, at least with Alcor, um, you can use a sort of an insurance company. So they have an insurance company that work with them and they allow you to have a plan. So if you are a young person with no health issues, usually the fee is about $30 per month. Of course, as you age or you have health issues, uh, it increases. It's around $100 per month. So it's not super expensive if you don't pay up front. But of course, it's not It's not a cost that everyone can afford. So poor people could not afford it. And that's something actually we'll, we'll come back to a little bit later on when we discuss some of the ethical side of this. Uh, just still on the kind of fa- basic facts about the process. You kind of, You mentioned this already. You hinted at it. When it comes to cryopreservation, at the moment, you can't preserve somebody before they die. So this this obviously, I think, poses a number of logistical issues when it comes to preserving a person. Could you maybe discuss some of those uh, logistical issues? Yeah, so cryopreservation can only happen at the moment where... Uh, when legal death has been pronounced. It cannot happen before that, of course. So once this has occurred, then they use medications to maintain the sedation, reduce the metabolism, and prevent blood clotting. And the body, and the blood circulation and respiration are restored uh, to keep the tissues alive. And then the patient is cooled down using ice water to bring the body temperature very low. And then they start in perfusing the body with with defrication solutions. So pretty much you have to remove the blood because the blood is mostly made of water and water would freeze and then break the cells. So you have to avoid that. So you remove the blood and instead you use this liquid that is used for uh, the transportation of organs in organ, trans- in organ transplant. And then after that, uh, after you've removed the, the blood, uh, you can use the uh, liquid nitrogen at minus 108 degrees Celsius, which is really, really cold. <laughs> so there are some legal caveats there. So you need to wait to be to be legally uh, legally dead so that forces some patients that know that they are about to die to uh, like people who have cancer at the last stage to pretty much refuse food and water so as to speed the point they're legally dead so that can that they can have uh, cryonics because of course you don't want to have cryopreservation when your brain is extremely damaged so if you have a patient with um, cancer their brain and they probably want to speed up the process before the cancer ruins the, the, the brains. Yeah, um, sorry, I just have a book in front of me. It's Mark O'Connell's book, To Be a Machine, which is uh, probably not hugely favorable towards cryonics, but it does make the comment at one point that um, obviously the success of the procedure, and this is a quote from his book, uh, to a large extent depends on the predictability of death. So cancer yes. on aggregate is good. If you want a strong chance of an extended lifespan, Terminal cancer is a good place to start from. Heart attack is less good because it's extremely difficult to predict when it's going to get you. An aneurysm or a stroke is worse again because if it's strong enough to kill you, it's going to leave you with brain damage. And that's yes. going to be tricky to deal with down the line. So, I mean, he gives other examples of this as well. So, you know, dying in an accident in an unpredictable way is problematic when it comes to cryopreservation. Uh, you need a relatively predictable form of death so that it can be kind of managed and you're, you can be preserved yes. as quickly as possible. Yes, yes. So like if you have an accident in a remote area, I mean, that that's really bad. So I think that they try to preserve as much as possible. But usually you would have to start immediately because after six minutes, after your uh, heart stops beating, your brain starts being has been damaged. Uh, so you want to have like six minutes time to start doing all this process. So the more time passes between the time you 
your heart stops beating and you have the cryonic intervention, the worse, the worse it is. So you have to write to die in the right way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So even as a method of possibly prolonging or extending your life, it's a method that has a kind of narrow utility or it only applies to a certain cohort of people who die yes. in, in a particular way. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But so this also raises the question, and this is maybe the first kind of substantive question about, you know, the rationality and permissibility of it, which is this, that a lot of these processes sound kind of far-fetched or alien to us. In Mark O'Connell's book, which I just mentioned, he kind of makes it out to sound a bit ridiculous almost absurd to be even considering this option. Um, like how, do, how, how do you feel about this? Do you think this is something that's crazy or is it, uh, is it um, completely far-fetched or a Hail Mary pass, I think is the term that O'Connell uses in his book to describe the attitude of some people towards it? Or is it something that we should be taking seriously? I know that that's the very common attitude to think, oh, it's so weird, crazy, it's yucky. And you know, in one sense, yes, it is something. This is a, a new technology that at the moment has very low chances of succeeding. So, you know, people wonder, why would you invest in in something that's such a low chance of succeeding? The point, I think, is that, yes, it has low chances of succeeding, but there is so much at stake. So the idea is that if you can live, so the motto of, uh, people interested in cryonics and life extension is that you need to live long enough to live forever. So the idea is that, well, if you can use cryonics to get to a future where most of other death causes can be fixed, so you can fix cancer, you can fix aging, you can fix more things, then, you know, you can live virtually forever, say. Mm, so considering so how much life is at stake, so, you know, hundreds or thousands of future years of life, then I think it doesn't look that that crazy and and irrational, because you have these extremes in which there is so much at stake, but the chances of succeeding are so low. But still, you know, this unbalance is is rational. I think. Yeah, there's one thing you do in your book as well, which I think is quite good, which is that you compare and draw analogies between cryopreservation of adult humans and other similar procedures that have become normalized in the recent past. So, for example, something like the cryopreservation of embryos. Now, obviously, there's, there are differences between those two things. Some of them are probably quite important. But what is it that you think we can learn from these kinds of historical examples of, of things that once seemed weird but have become normalized? Yes, I did the um, parallelism with IVF, I think, is quite useful because, you know, the first person born through in vitro fertilization uh, was born 40 years ago. I think we celebrated that like two days ago and breathing embryos became available like five years later. So it hasn't been going on for, for a long time. Pretty much most adult people remember how weird and yucky and crazy uh, IVF sounded. Like, why should you have babies in a lab? How can you create life in a lab? That all sounded like so, so weird. And now, like 40 years later, I think I know more babies that are born through IVF than without IVF. So it has become really normal. It has been going on like very, very quickly and people have adapted so all these objections based on oh it's weird oh it's it's yucky mm, it doesn't feel natural we shouldn't play with life oh this is plain god all the all the common objections to this kind of new technologies now they're not very common anymore so i don't hear anyone saying oh you want to use ivf it's it's really weird why do you want to do it so once the technology starts being used and people 
want to use it because you know the advantage of using IVF has been enormous like I don't know how many millions of children have been born through IVF and people really care about having children so once you have a technology that people want and people want to use and works then all these objections very quickly dissolve uh, and that's why I wanted to keep this parallelism with IVF because like look you know this is the same thing it's liquid nitrogen it's a human it's a human being at different stages it's playing with life at the opposite ends at the beginning and at the end and it, it felt so weird at the beginning but now we're we all think it's cool we all think it's fine uh so maybe the same thing will happen with cryonics maybe yeah but i, I suppose like the the disanalogies are important as well and so, so the cryopreservation of an embryo it's a proof of concept that we can revive a certain kind of biological organism or entity but it's at a much less developed stage so the, you know, the technical difficulties with cryopreserving a whole human or just a human brain are are pretty uh, formidable yes no there are huge technical differences there as i was saying the chances of cryonics succeeding um are very low we don't have high expectation that they will ever work but it's not impossible and the point for me is that well, yes, it is weird. It sounds weird, but uh, we have to start thinking about it. We have to maybe invest some money in research for it, on it, and hopefully not shaming people who are interested in it, like scientists and philosophers working on cryonics because, oh, it's so weird. It's not something we're talking about. So definitely there is a huge, huge difference between uh, cryopreserving embryos and cryopreserving legally dead people. It's enormous on a technical level. But on a philosophical level, I think we can see that, well, there are so relevant, so many relevant similarities there. Why can't we even talk about it? Yeah, no, I think we can, we, we should be talking about it. I, there's an issue here with the improbability of the method, which might have to do with, you know, the opportunity cost involved, that by paying for it and investing in it, we might forego other opportunities or options, which are possibly more plausible or yeah, more likely to succeed in terms of life extension. I mean, do you have any views on that kind of opportunity cost that's involved in, in favoring cryonics over something else? So definitely, you know, we, we, we live at a time where millions of people are dying of starvation. And that, that is a huge priority. So that's, that's the biggest priority we have at, at this moment. And we need to invest in, in fighting poverty. So I don't think, you know, cryonics is on the top on the top of the list of the actionable points we have to take in the future. But I think it's not something we should we should also dismiss and not take into account at all. There is no public money that I'm aware of invested in cryonics research. It's all conducted in in, in private with private funding. And and again, the problem is that yes, the chances of succeeding are very low, but what if what if it works? What if there is a way to make it work? How many, how many people are dying and could be actually saved if we maybe invested more money on cryonics? It's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult estimate to do here because again, as when it comes to well, should I invest money in cryonics? Should I? Well, it's it's difficult because the gain is so huge potentially, but the chances at the moment are still are still very low. The problem is that. If we, if we don't really uh, invest anything in research on cryonics, these chances of succeeding become smaller and smaller. At least we don't make any progress. So I think it would be useful to have a look into it, you know, put just more work in it. It's like, okay, let's try to understand if this could, if this could 
work. And if we decide, well, no, this is just like, it's technically insurmountable. So this can never work. Then we give up on it. But at this moment, we have this uncertainty because not much work has been done. So we can't even say it's a crazy investment that is not worth doing because we don't know about it. Yeah. I mean, let's go into the main kind of axiological or value proposition that kind of lies at the heart of this uh, debate about the ethics of cryonics. So your book is subtitled, Is It Immoral to Be Immortal? And I think this highlights the fact that the debate around cryonics raises these you know, perennial philosophical questions around the goodness or badness of death and the desirability of immortality. Although my own view is that the debate about immortality is a bit of a red herring here, but we might come back to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think like, to most people, it's intuitive that we should want to avoid death. I think that uh, most people are afraid of dying or don't like the idea of dying, at least in most circumstances. But, you know, is that a philosophically tenable position? Is that the view that we should hold? So, you know, philosophers have various accounts of what makes death a bad thing and something that we shouldn't desire. So, like, what are these kind of accounts of death's badness? Why should we take the badness of death seriously and want to preserve our lives for longer? The um, desire of keep living and the fear of death is... is is also like varies with different cultures. So I was always a big fan of the Greek tragedy. So I took the opportunity to mention that in the book. You know, in the time where Epicurus and uh, Sophocles were living, like death was not considered the worst thing that could happen to you. Indeed, they used to say that the best thing that can happen to you is not to be born at all. And once you're born, to die as soon as possible because life is just painful and horrible. That now we have this um, in our culture. Um, death uh, is feared so we consider death the worst thing that can happen to us and and this is because death is the deprivation of all the counterfactual lives we could live can really say oh well if i die tomorrow i'm not going to listen to this amazing podcast we are recording right now but i also will be deprived of all the opportunities of doing the things i want to do so my preferences uh, for the future will be frustrated and this makes death when I have something to look forward to or when I have projects that will be frustrated. This makes death bad. Yeah, so I mean, that's a standard kind of deprivationist account of the, the badness of death. And it relies on this counterfactual comparison between the life that you could have lived if you didn't die. I mean, again, I, th- I think that's kind of intuitively plausible, incredible. I have some issues with this. Like one problem I have with that kind of counterfactual analysis of what makes something good or bad is that it can seem over-inclusive at times and that it, it makes a lot of things seem much worse than we might initially have suspected them to be because any choice that I make there was some counterfactual out there that was maybe better so if I if I'm to value what actually happened in terms of what could have happened what actually happened might I might start disvaluing that or viewing it as being much worse if I start comparing it to more and more kind of outlandish hypotheticals. So, I mean, I would worry a little bit about a deprivationist account or a counterfactualist account of, of the value of our choices if we apply it quite generally. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yes, no, I agree on that. But the point I think that bad in the, the death in the respect is the worst option because then there is, you know, you may say, oh, I've made a wrong decision. My counterfactual life would have been, you know, much better if I had not done that thing. Of course, it's part of life and we all have that 
uh, sort of existential regret. But about that, the thing is that, well, it doesn't matter. There's just like nothing after that. So you can't even the pleasure, can't even have the pleasure of regretting your wrong choices and the mistakes you've made. Uh, so there's just like nothing. And and I think that being deprived of a possibly worth living counterfactual life is definitely is definitely the worst that can that can happen to you if that life was going to be worth living of course so i don't i don't agree with nagel that just experiencing life is a net positive no matter what the content of of your life i think there must be something good in your life otherwise it wouldn't it, it's better for you to to die so in that sense i think that the the, the value of life is not living itself but it has to include some good things and most life seems to seem to be to seem to be pretty good good enough that people would want to keep living I mean, what about then the kind of more extreme view which is this that you know life isn't worth living at all the argument of somebody like david benatar which is you know it's better not to be brought into existence in the first place and yeah now that we are brought in existence kind of like your greek tragedian tragedian view that we should try and kind of wind down human life as soon as possible. Obviously, that's very antithetical to the worldview of a cryonicist. So you know, how do you approach that kind of argument? Well, yes, I mean, David Benatar thinks that it's better not to be born at all. But as I understand, even he thinks that once you are born, you develop an interest in continued living. So he's not advocating suicide, but he's rather advocating uh, not procreating. Because once you've started living... I don't know if it's just a bias, like, you know, I have a bias in wanting to do what uh, what I started doing because that's how my brain is structured. So I have bias in keep doing what I've been best investing on. But it, it, it seems to believe that, yes, even if it would be better not to be born at all, once you're born, there are interests. You develop interest and keep living. That's why uh, you shouldn't be killed and you probably don't want to kill yourself either. I don't know if it's the brain that is just, you know, playing with us in a sense, like tr- playing tricks on us. And maybe maybe that's wrong. But I don't think that even negativitarians would say that it's best to die as soon as possible, as the old Greeks would say. I'm not saying that the old Greeks are wrong about it, but we don't seem to share that intuition. Of course, some people do. People who kill themselves commit rational suicide probably decide that it's better for them not to exist at all. And I don't know if that has to do with the fact that life is inherently painful, so it's just best to die as soon as possible, or if it has to do with the content of their life. Yeah, um, well, I guess, you know, kind of figuring out what exactly motivated somebody to commit suicide can be can be tricky unless they are very explicit about it and there's a yeah. r- rich kind of research literature on, on the rationality or irrationality of of suicide uh which probably won't get into but um i mean so there is a question here about like kind of to do with the the counterfactual scenario so uh, i think your view would probably be that if you want to keep on living it's desirable that you be facilitated or enabled to keep on living but i think you would agree that there are probably some cases in which a life that has come into existence is no longer worth living because of its, you know, the future is nothing but uh, interminable pain for the person or that it's going to be on net bad for them, in which case it might be rational to die or to favor euthanasia. Yes. But there is an argument in your book, and it's actually probably one of the 
more interesting chapters of the book, which we won't be able to explore in full, which is that the possibility of cryopreservation might change how we look at these cases of defensible euthanasia. Um, what, what you what are you referring to in particular? Um, so um, because. In the case, like uh, suggesting that once you have the opportunity of keep on living, you might want to keep postponing death, even if that is not so good, just because you have the option of doing it. Uh, sorry, I'm not. Well, so um, I, I I kind of took your uh, one of your chapters to be that you know the the possibility that you can instead of killing people, we could cryopreserve them. Yeah. In a sense. So even so, where it where their life might not currently be worth living in its current form. Instead of committing suicide, such a person should be given the opportunity, or it might be preferable for them to be given the oh, opportunity yeah, yeah. of cryothanasia, as you call it. Cryothanasia, yes. Yeah. yes. Chapter of the book and also a paper uh, I published in Bioethics with Anders Sandberg. So we're talking about this topic first and then develop it further in the book. So the idea is that a lot of people now would want to have euthanasia, but the, the reason why they want to have euthanasia is that at this very moment, their life doesn't offer any better option. Like they're suffering, they have some disease that is just going to get worse and and be painful so there is no option at, at the moment for them so in that case you know the counterfactual life at the moment is just suffering so it's it's rational for them to want to die your their euthanasia is completely understandable however uh, we could also offer them uh, the option of having cryotanasia which would work pretty much like euthanasia in the sense that you know we can offer it to them before the suffering is too extreme or before the brain has been too damaged or you know at any moments uh, during their suffering that the condition is affecting them and then cryopreserve them instead with the hope that at some point in the future hopefully not so distant future a therapy for the condition that is causing them to suffer right now, whether cancer or something, uh, will be uh, will be available, and also it will we will have found a way to revive people who have been cryopreserved, and at that point they could brought back to life because a lot of people who choose euthanasia don't choose euthanasia because they are sick alive. Such they would prefer to keep living without whatever disease is making their life miserable. So if they were offered some hope to to get back to life, to come back to life, without that condition, they would prefer that. And uh, so we explored this option, and and we think it uh, would be a great alternative to, to euthanasia in this sense, because it would probably help people who, you know, who actually want to keep living but are just suffering too much. And euthanasia cannot fix that. They can just stop their lives. But maybe we can oppose their life and find a way to make it better in the future. Yeah, although, I, I mean, it does require some change to, well, you know, euthanasia more generally, depending on which country you're living in, some countries allow it, some countries don't. But kind of including the option then of cryopreservation would require an additional kind of change to the legal regime on top of any change towards euthanasia. Yes, but we also wanted to argue that, I mean, that's the main thing we wanted to argue for, is that even in countries where euthanasia is not legal at the moment, cryothanasia should probably be legal because it is motivated motivated by different arg- arguments and it's it can be considered sort of like the ultimate treatment to avoid death that one can try. So in some other cases, there's nothing you can do. It's either dying 
or cryotanasia. So why not offering this option to people who are already dying and you know they ask for euthanasia just because they cannot bear the pain of of their or the cancer is imposing on them. So I think that even people who don't like the idea of euthanasia because it's giving up on life or shortening your life, all the arguments that have been traditionally used against euthanasia, I think that they should agree that cryotanasia actually is a better option. Yeah, although, I mean, I suspect then they'll probably retreat to other kinds of objections to the practice because um, they're probably not motivated just by... Uh, probably, but yeah. that's fun, right? Like, okay, now explain me what is really wrong with this <laughs> because if it's not that, then it's something else. So it's it's fun to get the core. Yeah, no, uh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, let's kind of switch tack here for a moment, though, to a different kind of question, which is just about, should we want to live forever anyway? Is this a, something that we should desire? Now, again, I'm, I'm not sure how important this is, per se, to the debate about cryonics. But anyway, you know, there were some famous philosophical arguments that claim that we shouldn't want to live forever, that to live an immortal life would be boring or tedious. So Bernard Williams has a very yeah. famous and widely discussed argument from a paper written back in the 70s that claims that you know you, you should want to die at a certain point because you're going to exhaust the kind of projects and categorical desires that make for a recognizably human life and you'll have nothing left to live for at that point. And th- th- there are other variations on this argument yeah, yeah. that have been developed. You know, Martha Nussbaum has an argument that says that death is valuable because it adds some significance or weight, normative weight to our choices. I think she yeah. might have disowned this argument later on, but she initially defended it anyway, that it's the fact that you're going to die that kind of makes your choices meaningful and makes them carry normative weight. If you could kind of rehearse and repeat all your choices, it would rob them of value in some sense. So, you know, what do you think about those kinds of arguments? Should they affect how we look at cryonics at all? What's your view on that? Yes, uh, this this argument about like life become like really tedious and boring uh, once you start living after a certain number of years. I think the case of Bernard Williams, uh, it wasn't even that long. Like, like he's considered somebody living for 340 years, if I'm not wrong or something like that so it was like yeah, an extremely that. long life so the question is like the, 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 the idea is that we will get bored because we have a limited number of desires or projects that motivate us to keep leaning and then once we have exhausted all the numbers of projects and plans for the future once we've done all the things we wanted to do then there is nothing keeping us alive not, nothing keeping us motivated to, to keep living hence uh, immortality or even a very long life is is not something worth trying to to achieve. And I think this idea of like existential boredom is it is very interesting. I think that there is something something very interesting to that. Both like existential boredom and um, existential tiredness. Uh, that I think it's usually they usually conflated in the debate, but I think they're different. Uh, but anyway, I think. That yes, it might be that there is a point of your life when you cannot really experience anything new. So like even the fact of experiencing new thing has become obsolete and boring. So we have a limited number of of, of new experiences in our life, of course. But but then like if you compare your life in your thirties, I'm in my thirties, and yes, I really still get excited about some new things, but it's not as getting excited about things when I was five or six, it has become less exciting to become 
decided about new things, if you know what I mean. And uh, I'm afraid this is a process that keeps going, keeps increasing. So that, you know, when you get older and older, you can still get excited about new things. There will be new things. I mean, my grandmother never saw an iPhone before. And then now she's, you know, 19. She gets an iPhone that's new to her. But I think that, you know, these excitements, anyway, the capacity to feel excitement gets depleted over time. And that's something that makes me think that maybe, you know, maybe there is something to this argument. But the point is, we don't know whether this is going to happen. We don't know if this is just the normal trajectory of a human life, whether this depends on also knowing that our life is going to to end sometime soon. So, you know, even the most, optimi- uh, uh, most optimistic person think, oh, well, 100, it's how much time. So I started to be, to feel detached from things. Nothing is more exciting. It's, it's exciting anymore. Or whether it is, it is just something we can actually tweak. Some people I know suggest that actually you can tweak the brain so as to get excited about new things as when you were children. I don't know if that's even possible. That would be great, I guess. But we don't know at this moment now, how long would it take for somebody in good health and in their body as, you know, as a 30-year-old, 40-year-old, so a body that you can use to do all sorts of things, uh, whether they would actually get bored of life, because nobody has experienced that yet. So it's, it's very difficult uh, to say, oh, yeah, we will get bored of, of life at some point, because this is what happens to people. Because people who normally age now, age in a way that their body gets weaker, and you know the brain gets slower so when we talk about you know cryonics it also goes together with rejuvenation which i think is even more exciting maybe so the idea that you can rejuvenate your body and stay at a young age for thousands or hundreds or maybe forever and that would make things very very different we would experience life in a completely different way now i don't know whether we will still get bored of things at some point Point. Nobody can know that, but I wouldn't say, oh, that's definitely what is going to happen. If I'm going to be 30 for 5,000 years, anyway, around the year 90 of my life, I will be bored and I will want to die. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. No, so I, I agree with you that it's, there's a lot of uncertainties here. I, I suppose I, like I would say a, a few things by way of response to that. One is just that you know, by adding in these arguments about rejuvenation and um, maybe life, you know, preservation as opposed to, you know, you're not just prolonging the unhealthy parts of life, you're somehow enabling people to be resuscitated in a, a more youthful or rejuvenated form. You know, that, that's, that makes it more desirable, but then it means that you're, it's not just dependent on the capacity to have resuscitating technologies, it's dependent on, on lots of other kinds of technological changes yeah. as to whether cryonics is something that we should desire. But, you know, going back to the more general philosophical debate about the desirability of, of living really long lives or immortal lives. I think that I think there's probably two interesting questions there. One like is whether there's some limit to our capacity as the current biological beings that we are to experience joy or happiness in life or do we get tired and bored at some point in time? That could could well be true, but we don't really know what the upper limits are and there certainly seem to be some people who are in their 90s who have lots of, you know, joie de vivre, so to speak. It's not clear that we should make prescriptions for the majority based on uh, these kinds of uncertainties. But there's also maybe another interesting theoretical question as to whether, you know, even if you didn't have these biological capacities or limits, whether you would at some point 
run out of things to do or run out be bored. But again, we're it's clear that we're we're not anywhere near that limit at the moment. And so for me, this kind of makes a lot of these debates around the desirability of immortality irrelevant to the debate about cryonics, because cryonics isn't any way about achieving immortality per se. It's just about extending the kinds of lives that we currently live. And nobody is claiming that death will be impossible for us. You still have the option of voluntarily ending your life if that's something that you wanted to do. So I think it kind of renders some of these philosophical arguments moot in the debate around cryonics. Yes. So at the moment, yes, I agree so that, you know, we don't have to buy the whole package. Cryonics is same thing as immortality. It's not like that. We don't know if it's ever going to be like that. But my understanding, talking to people who are involved in cryonics, who have contract for having cryonics, is that the plan, the hope is is to live forever. As I was saying, the motto is long live enough to live forever. I don't know how many people like really are committed to that idea, but I think it is it is something in in the cryonics community. So it's something people uh, are thinking of, and I think it also since I I think the cryonics would necessarily have to come with um, with rejuvenation uh, technology because I think that most people die these days not an old age and they would probably be able to be cryopreserved we were saying you have to die in the right way but yes if you die pretty old you're probably going to die of you know Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease or cancer so some degenerative condition that comes with age I guess most patients die of cry- uh, that are cryopreserved are people who are pretty old hopefully the majority of them and then to make sense of cryonics like to use it you have to resuscitate a person at a time where it's also possible to extend their life considerably. So you don't want to be cryopreserved at 80 and then, you know, be resuscitated at, you know, after 50 years and you're 80 and then lifespan is, you know, 10 years longer than now and you get to, you know, 90 or 100. I think that all this cryonics enterprise makes sense if you see the bigger picture of actually radically extending human life. And this seems that can happen way more easily if we find a way to rejuvenate the the human body. So I think that what will happen is that we're trying to figure out ways to rejuvenate um, the human body. We're also trying to find ways to make cryonics work. And then at some point, people who are associated will will be cured of whatever condition they have, but they will also be rejuvenated so that they can keep living for longer and be healthy. Uh, since, you know, being young and being healthy usually go together. And I think that at some point, you know, when this uh, rejuvenating technology will uh, work pretty pretty cool, you can say, okay, I'm going to take this pill that rejuvenates me of five years. And after five years, like, oh, what should I do? Should I keep aging and just become decrepit and die? Or should I, you know, take another pill for five years and, you know, be in my 30s for five more years? And that becomes such a habit, I think. You know, it's just like, okay, you know, let's, Let's stay in this zone in which I'm pretty safe from the dirty disease and I don't have high chances of dying, not by accident. And at that point, you know, you be somehow like life gets really extended and become you, know, you become virtually more immortal without really thinking much about it. And and that's why I think that we need to think about immortality when we think about cryonics and rejuvenation and all this new technologies because it's not something like oh you know we're gonna have some major transformation and become immortal we get the mortality pill 
I think it's just going to happen in a way that, you know, we just stay young. We just stay in our young body because we can rejuvenate. And then, you know, it turns out that, you know, we live for thousands of years or a million of years or, you know, not forever. At some point, the, the, the universe is going to, <laughs> to die. But, you know that sense. Yeah, uh, let's maybe switch to another kind of set of questions here. So, I mean, let's assume we accept that preserving life is a good idea and extending life greatly is a good idea. Does that, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's still an ethical choice for me right now to um, choose cryonics or um, opt for cryonics. Uh, this, This is something you discuss a good bit in your book, um, and we kind of mentioned it earlier on, but I do want to maybe go into it in a, in a little bit more detail, which is, again, you know, is, I'm reasonably comfortable in terms of wealth and income. I could probably afford cryonics right now. I could afford a cryonics insurance policy for myself and my family. But would it be an ethical thing for me to, for, to pay for it, to do so? Is it not like an incredibly selfish thing for me to do? to splurge on cryonics insurance? Yeah, that's the, I think that's one of the most difficult questions. And so a lot of people tend to think, well, you know, why would you do cryonics when there are other priorities? And of course, you know, I agree. As I said before, poverty and people dying because of poverty is the top priority right now. So we should invest in that first thing. However, these are the same people who buy houses and buy expensive clothes and buy expensive cars and pay a lot of money for um, health treatments. I mean, maybe that's more true in the US where there is no public health system, but still like, you know, we use insane amount of money in to, to stay alive for a few more years. So, you know, we invest a lot of, of money in that. So we spend a lot of mine, money for ourselves, either for you know, very useful things as medications and treatments to keep us alive or also like very, very futile things, which could we could definitely use to help people um, who are dying of starvation. So the weird thing is that in, if you say, oh, well, I'm going to buy a new car, people are oh, cool, don't you buy a new car? But if you say, oh, I'm going to have a cryonic, um, a sign for cryonics, people, oh, why are you wasting your money that you should use these are this other way. And I find that a bit, little bit funny um, <laughs> because definitely, you know, you don't probably don't need an expensive new car. Now, it's true that with cryonics, we don't know whether it's going to work. And so you might say, oh, well, if you really don't want to help the poor and if you want to use the money on yourself, at least if you have a, a nice car, you can enjoy the nice car and, you know, die happy that you've been driving your nice car for many years. And then if you do cry, if you invest in cryonics, maybe that you never uh, enjoy anything coming out of it. But again, we don't know whether it's going to work or not. What is at stake is, again, extremely high. So how would you compare driving a nice car with um, enjoying even just like 200 years of life in good health in the future? Then if you look at that in that perspective, you might think, okay, well, you know, that's not such a crazy investment. This doesn't mean, of course, that, you know, this is the best way to invest your money on. However, there is a difficult issue here. So suppose that, you know, you can use a certain amount of money to buy yourself 500 years 
of life in the future. And you can use the same amount of money to save the life of 10 people who, thanks to your money, will live for longer for a total sum of, you know, among the 10 of them of 500 years. So is it more moral to uh, spend the money to extend the life of these 10 people so that overall you have increased the life of 500 years? Or should it's, you know, it's selfish if you spend the same amount of money to increase your own life of 500 years. Does it make a difference who is living? No, you still have 500 years extra life there. And this is a bit of a tricky question. I don't have an answer to that. And what if, you know, what if it's not yet even like 500 years that you can help people to live longer or, you know, it becomes like 5,000 years. So if you are, if you are betting on extending your life by 5,000 years, but you can only use that money to help poor people to live up to 500 years or among the 10 of them, then, you know, you're comparing 500 and 5,000. Yes, 500 are shared by 10 people, 5,000 it's only you. But at that point, I think that, you know, 5,000 years of your life is not a crazy investment. Of course, things are not exactly that yet because we don't know if cryonic, cryonics will work or not. We have no idea about that. But I think that we also need to take into consideration these this other possibilities. Yeah, I mean, so like to me, that kind of the example that you ran through there gets at maybe the most interesting philosophical question that's behind this whole debate, which it's effectively like a distributive question. If you're an impartial utilitarian and life years are goods, it's, you know, it's a good thing, broadly speaking, to have an extra year of life, but it doesn't really matter who lives that, yeah. those li extra life years. And there is an interesting question here. Do, do you distribute them as widely as possible across the 10 people, or do you add more life years onto an individual life? And it's a broadly similar to debates around distributive justice and income inequality as well. So life years yes. are a kind of income, and we've got to think about how we distribute them. But yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the answer is to that. And it becomes more complicated if you think about intergenerational issues as well and intergenerational justice. So like, do we, do we have to factor in the life years of future generations as well into our calculation? But Yes, exactly. I mean, this is very complicated because then, uh, you know, it could be that, again, like if this argument about, you know, getting bored or tired of life is actually true, then you may think, okay, well, and I will live 500 years or 5,000 years, but these years are not going to be really um, worthwhile because as I age, my quality, the, life, the quality of my life is just bound to decline. There is nothing I can do. We know for sure that the longer you live, the worse it gets. And this seems to be pretty true right now. But we don't know if it's going to be true in the future. If that were true, you could say, okay, well, then definitely I should have to invest on, on saving the life or um, of the life of these 10 people uh, instead. But it could also work in reverse. Maybe it's, life is something that we just get better at the more we live. Maybe there is a point after, you know, it's a learning curve. And, you know, after you've been living for 200 years, 300 years, you really master the art of living. So actually those 500 years or 5,000 years that you can add to your own life are way more valuable than the years you can add to, to these other people, much shorter amount of time that you can add to their life just because you have become really good at, at living. And, you know, now you take so much joy from your own life. So 
since we did all these things that we don't know yet, it's really, really difficult because there are all these other factors. And like, you know, life is life. Maybe life becomes different after you've been living for a while. For better or worse, we don't know. Yeah, and it might be worthwhile kind of tolerating at least some experiments with regard to life extension to figure out whether that is true or false. Yeah. Uh, so that we can make better decisions in this regard. I mean, maybe it's a problem if everybody's doing it right now, if everybody's investing all their money in Chronix. But if yeah. there's a small community of people who are doing it and they can be pioneers and figure things out for us, then we can think about these broader questions afterwards. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, so just, you know... We're kind of uh, coming up on an hour, but I, there are two other questions I just want to ask about the kind of rationality of wanting to undergo cryonics and the probability of it being successful. So, you know, one big objection that people will make is that, well, you know, how rational is it to suppose that future generations will have any interest in reviving you? You know, my guess, and this is, again, is just a pure guess, is that future generations would, might have an interest in reviving one or two people in the interests of scientific curiosity just to see if it's possible. But would they want to uh, revive everybody? I mean, they could be going through lots of other problems and have their own issues in terms of distributive justice. It might not be something that they want to invest time and energy in. So how, I mean, how should we think about that in terms of whether future generations will actually care about resuscitation? Yes, there is a lot of uncertainty there. So we don't know whether future generations would have an interest in resuscitating us. We don't know whether they would treat us nicely. Uh, we don't know whether we would wake up in a world that is completely different and we cannot make any sense of. So things could go like really, really bad. So and, and that's one option. But I think what you were focusing more is like what, you know, if they have the tools to resuscitate everyone, all the people who have been prior preserved and uh, there would be resources for everyone or like, you know, we, we could have a decent life, but they just don't have an interest in that. That's a possibility. But I think that the cryonicists are more focused on their own community. So the idea is not that there will be some random people in the future that would have to have this need of resuscitating these people who are part of the community. This is sort of like self-sustaining community. And the living patients are now taking care of the cryopreserved patients. In the future, there will be more generations of living patients, and this is all connected. So I think that the idea is that there is a community there of cryonicists that is really interested in this, and it will do whatever they can to bring back to existence, to existence, all the people will be cryopreserved. Now, I don't know if this community will dissolve, but this seems, seems to be the plan at the moment. So it's not much about like a generic, generic future people having to invest resources, but just these people were part of this community. Of course, then if cryonics became mainstream, it wouldn't be a community, it would be like everyone. So I don't know how that work in that case. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting there in that we don't just have to preserve the bodies, we have to preserve the community and the culture that cares about it as well. So it's a kind of an added dimension to preservation. But it seems plausible to me at the moment that there will be a dedicated community that will care about this in, in the future. The other question then, and this is, I guess, the plot point in a lot of science fiction, is, you know, imagine if you did resuscitate somebody into the distant future, if we could revive a a caveman or a Neanderthal or something like that and bring them into the 21st century, you know, would they be a good fit for our world? Would it be something that uh, would be good for them on net? And is this something I should worry about in terms of my resuscitation in the future? You kind of touched upon this as well in answer to the previous question. You know, should, would I be 
would I end up in a world that is just completely unfamiliar to me that I wouldn't want to live in? Life wouldn't be desirable or worth living to me in that future? Is that something that the cryonicist should care about? Yeah, so this seems to be like a big concern. It's like, what if the future is, is we're not fit for the future or the future doesn't really accommodate? And, you know, there could be like so many things could be different. I mean, human being might have evolved to be a completely different species. So we would feel like, you know, mosquitoes to them or something like that. We could, they couldn't even know how to, to care for us. Like, or maybe, you know, our bodies wouldn't be fit for an environment that's completely different and we would suffer, we would be, we'd be disabled. So cryonics could succeed in a sense, in the sense that, yes, you've, you've traveled pretty much to the future thanks to cryonics. But then this future is really disappointing and uh, you don't want to be here anymore. And so you decide to, to ask for euthanasia. So there are a lot of things that could go wrong. And it could also just be extremely just alien. Even if everything is pretty much as we remember, the world hasn't changed too much. And, you know, we're not with post-humans, but, you know, still the same species. But it could just be very different and it could just be very difficult uh, for someone who has been cryopreserved now, for instance, to to really adapt, especially I think if one goes into prior cryopreservation by themselves, I think it would be slightly different if you know if your whole family and friends decided to be cryopreserved, and then you know one day your little community is revived, and you at least have those uh, those relationships with you. But maybe you know being revived in the future, we don't know anybody and. Things are pretty different. That 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 could be tough. I, one last question I want to ask you is I mean, the obvious question, which is you, you've written a book about this. Um, ha, have you signed up for cryonics? And if you haven't, why haven't you? If you have, what motivated you to do so? Well, I haven't. Uh, haven't signed up for cryonics. I don't know if I'm going to do it at some point. This is not, not because I think that you know cryonics would be would be a bad investment. Indeed, I think that in the book I've explained why I think this is something worth researching and thinking about. Of course, I do have concerns about whether I should use my money for uh, to save people who are, who are suffering now, so just to uh, to leave poverty. So that's that's one of the main obstacles. And apart from that, I I don't know. Uh, it's um, well while writing the book, actually, I started thinking more about um, about life and death and how life starts changing when you start aging. I I'm not sure I have the the right genetic makeup, say, for for living for you know for cryonics. I think I'm the kind of person who who really needs their relationships to be healthy. So I would be worried about, you know, waking up in a future where I don't know anybody. Um, okay, well, that's uh, <laughs> an interesting note of, uh, kind of self-doubt or humility. Um, so, you know, we, again, we haven't really touched on all the aspects of your book. It covers more of these debates or questions in much more detail. You know, we, hit, we touched upon the idea of cryothanasia with this whole chapter dedicated to that. There's also a whole chapter dedicated to cryopreservation as an alternative to abortion, which is very interesting and I'm sure would be controversial <laughs> to some people. So, you know, again, I, I urge people to, to check it out. But apart from that, I just wanted to thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. It was really fun. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.